Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, and thank you for joining me this Monday, December 5th. It is great to talk to you again after a few days off. Ah, you know, usually when the holidays come around, uh, political life kind of slows down a little bit. But no, not not anymore. Not in the world we live in now. So tomorrow's the big vote in Georgia. Well, they've been voting. Early voting has been going on for a while now. Uh, Tomorrow is the day to go to the polls for those who haven't taken advantage of early voting. And we will see whether or not the Democrats end up with a 50-50 Senate or a 51-49 Senate. It might seem like either one is a victory for the Democrats because it is. Um, But if the Democrats have 51 rather than 50, bureaucratically, it makes things a lot easier for them. Don't have to jump through quite so many hoops to get things passed. Now, the question is... uh, with uh, with Kevin McCarthy doing his darndest to be the leader in the House, what will get done? Senate can't do things on their own. Congress can't do things on their own. Joe Biden can do some things by executive order, but not everything. Here's the interesting wrinkle to all of that. You know, we've talked about how Kevin McCarthy is really struggling to get 218 votes he can count on. That is the number. That is the number he needs to be speaker. And the far right wing of his party and the moderate wing of his party are pretty much at war right now. He's supposedly making promises left and right. But what if he can't get 218 votes with just Republican votes. Well, Democratic Representative James Clyburn, who is the uh, Democratic congressperson from South Carolina, has said, you know, maybe Kevin McCarthy should sit down and talk with Hakeem Jeffries. <clears throat> Hakeem Jeffries, the, New- the Democratic New York congressperson who is now leader of the Democrats. Nancy Pelosi, with this new session, has uh, given up speakership. She's no longer in a leadership position. She says she's just she's going to represent the people of San Francisco as a regular congressperson. She thinks Hakeem Jeffries is a great guy. He's going to do a great job. She'll be there if he needs her. So um, Jim Clyburn is saying, you know, Kevin McCarthy, you ought to pick up the phone and talk to Hakeem Jeffries. You make he's making deals. He's making promises. Supposedly, he's told Marjorie Taylor Greene she's going to get all of her committee assignments back. Supposedly, he's promised people he's going to strip Adam Schiff of all his committee assignments and uh, some other prominent Democrats. But if he could get some Democratic support. He would be more likely to become speaker. And as long as he's making deals. You know, Jim Clyburn is saying, look, give Hakeem Jeffries a call. Maybe there are some bipartisan issues, bipartisan policies, bipartisan efforts that um, that you can agree to. So 
maybe this will not be a do-nothing two years. That was that was the prediction. You know, if Kevin McCarthy had won power in the House of Representatives in a landslide, he wouldn't be negotiating with anybody. It would be, you know, let's impeach Joe Biden, let's investigate Hunter Biden, blah, 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 blah. But Kevin McCarthy is sweating this one because moderate Republicans in Congress, and apparently there are some, apparently there is more than just a few, but they have been quiet. They have been keeping their heads down. They, you know, the Democrats were in control. Wasn't any reason really for them to stick their necks out. Uh, but they have made it clear to Kevin McCarthy that they are not going to let the Matt Gateses of the world, the Jim Jordans of the world, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, the Lauren Boberts of the world. They are not going to let those people be in charge and dictate what a Republican Congress does or does not do. <sighs> so the plot thickens. But hey, Jim Clyburn. Makes sense to me. You know what? You want to be the speaker? You're willing to make promises? Get a few Democrats on board. I think it makes a lot of sense. And as desperate as he is to be speaker and as much trouble as he is getting the necessary backing. Oh, my God, that would be glorious, wouldn't it? If he came crawling to the Democrats, oh, that would be something. That would be something. So we shall see. So we got the big election tomorrow in Georgia. Rick Smith, host of the Rick Smith Show. You hear every night here on WCPT. Rick is down in Georgia. We are going to be hearing from him uh, toward the end of the show today. Uh, Greg Pallast is in Georgia. We're going to be hearing from him. You know, to their credit, to their credit, the Democrats have not just sat back and said, well, you know, now that the Republicans know they can't win control even with this vote, I'm sure we'll get it. No, uh oh, President Obama has been down there stumping left and right for Herschel Walker. God love him. And a number of other, or Herschel Walker. No, he's been talking about Herschel Walker as he stumps for Raphael Warnock. Sorry. Got my, uh, tried to shorten my sentence and made it incoherent. But you know what? So far, nearly, not quite, but we're getting close to two million people in Georgia have voted. So far, early, just a hair under two million. When people turn out, Democrats do well. So it would be really interesting to see who Rick Smith has been talking to. We'll find that out coming up at uh, 2.30 today. So what's going on here in the lovely state of Illinois? Well, we just had a veto session, and everybody knew that they were going to tweak the Safety Act. There was some of the language wasn't clear you know, some of the people who actually had to enforce it were a little fuzzy on where the lines were. So some of the language was going to be straightened out. But they did some other things in the veto session. 
um, bailed out the unemployment fund, uh, passed a Springfield rail improvement project. Uh, a bill was passed that may seem like small potatoes, but it's one of the things that um, really should have been in place for a long time, um, providing free menstrual products and underwear to uh, inmates. Um A bill was passed that will encourage the state of Illinois to divest in any investment that involves Russia. Things do get done in the veto session. If you want to read a more detailed description, Patrick Keck, K-E-C-K, he writes for the, um, the state journal register. It's a, you can, you can get it digitally. It's a paper down in Springfield. Um, but he has a, a an in-depth article on what was passed and who was behind the work of the veto session. So what happens next? Um, now lawmakers get a little bit of a break until January 4th. And they're going to be there from back in Springfield from Wednesday, January 4th through Saturday, January 7th. They go back again on January 10th. It is possible that during one of those January sessions, it is possible that um, our legislature may be hearing about an assault weapons ban. This uh, legislation was uh, pushed forth by uh, Representative Bob Morgan, who's a Democrat from Deerfield. It's House Bill 5855, if you want to read more about it. It would make it illegal to manufacture, deliver, sell, or purchase any assault weapon. And what? how do they define assault weapon? Assault rifle, assault pistol, semi-automatic rifle, and um, other armaments that are defined by the legislation. This, of course, this bill did not arrive in a vacuum. It is a direct result of the July 4th shooting in Highland Park, the mass shooting where a young man legally was um, able to get a hold of a weapon, the kind of weapon that they're talking about, shoots really high-powered ammunition and shoots it quickly. Some of the people who were shot that day were unrecognizable. In Uvalde, Texas, some of the kids were unrecognizable. The uh, coroner in Uvalde described some of the wounds as body cavitation. That's um, a weapon that basically makes a big hole in your torso. You don't hunt with this kind of weaponry, you know, and if for some reason you just can't live without firing one of these weapons, maybe they could be restricted to gun ranges where they could be fired under the supervision of a professional.
A long time ago, I read an interesting interview with some, I don't know, some actor who had shot a movie where they had to shoot guns and they took some training and the actor said something I thought was really interesting, that when he was trained by professionals, people whose job it is to train people to use weapons, he said that that training was incredibly safety conscious. How to hold a weapon, how to unload a weapon. He said that the people who were the true professionals really stressed safety. But he said he also got some training from people who were just, you know, either had grown up around guns or shot targets for sport. And he said that the training he got from people like that didn't nearly as much talk about safety. That stuck with me when I read it. And it reflects my knowledge I've told you before that I come from a family where, you know, my father, all my uncles, my cousins, they hunt. Um, that we've, we grew up around guns. I used to shoot skeet. But I've got to tell you, when you really grow up around guns with a respect for, for guns from people who, I mean, most of the, most of the uncles and dads who taught us were, you know, they had also grown up hunting, not be, not for sport, but because they needed the food on the table. You know, I did not come from my Italian family. They were not wealthy. But the training about safety and how weapons should be stored and how they should be handled and how you handle the ammunition I come from a family with a deep respect for the safety aspects. I come from a family who understands what these weapons can do. And I guess I just always assumed everybody was like that, but they're not. So we shall see whether a House Bill 5855, sponsored by Bob Morgan from Deerfield, whether that makes any headway in any of these upcoming legislative sessions, again, January 4th through the 7th, and then back on the 10th. We'll see. I'm going to take a break, come back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Oh, and one more thing before we um, move on to some of the interesting people we're going to be talking to today. Rick Smith coming up at 2.30. He is down in Georgia where uh, 1.8 million people as of this morning had voted early in the Senate race between Raphael Warnock, who is currently the senator from Georgia, and former football player Herschel Walker, who is uh, the Republican candidate against him. We're going to hear from Rick very shortly. Uh, The Supreme Court... I know that until we bring about some reforms or some of these people retire or kick the bucket and we can make some changes, we've got to win big in 2024. We have got to win big in 2024. 
because we have got to make some changes to the Supreme Court. You know, a lot of the people that Trump appointed are in their like 40s and 50s, which means that unless we either expand the court or somehow try to impose term limits, these people are going to be wreaking havoc on our lives potentially for the next 40 years. It is untenable. Now they are hearing a case brought by a woman who says she's an evangelical in Littleton, Colorado, and she shouldn't have to design websites for gay couples. She designs wedding websites, but she she says it's a violation. Well, how did she put it? A violation of her free speech. It violates her religious belief that marriage is only between a man and a woman. So somehow, um, let's see, how did she rationalize this? She believes marriage is only between a man and a woman. So by compelling her to create websites for gay people, the state is compelling her to, uh, to espouse speech that she finds loathsome. Got that? Did you follow that? Pretzel logic? Well, how do you think Amy Coney Barrett, our um, inexperienced judge from Notre Dame, who used to, um, who knows, may still belong to a very conservative religious group where, you know, wives are supposed to be deferential to their husbands. And uh, then we have... Brett Kavanaugh, Clarence Thomas, who the day they struck down Roe v. Wade said that he wanted to go after gay marriage. So she is saying that even though she owns and operates a business that is open to the public, she should not have to serve members of the public she doesn't like or agree with. You know, if you... Regardless of what your religion tells you, regardless of how you feel in your heart of hearts about gay people, whenever a case like this comes up, substitute black or Negro for LGBTQ or gay and and see how it sounds to you. You don't think these same arguments are what supported Jim Crow? Well, you know, I I don't. I don't like black people. I I don't think that they're trustworthy or smart, and I don't want to have to serve them in my business. Okay, ma'am. Well, you know, we wouldn't want you to do anything that makes you uncomfortable. So, as usual, the conservative justices seem to be lapping this crap up. Lori Smith, Littleton, Colorado. Um, Unlike... The furor they unleashed with Roe v. Wade, though, even Alito, who is, um, I don't even want to, don't, don't go there, Joan. <sighs> Alito said that, um, you know, like he, he wants to, he wants to give her what she wants, but he doesn't want to make it so that everybody everywhere can refuse gay people. So he's trying to say that, um, Oh, because she does custom work. Somehow that's different. Again, seriously? 
you know, because this isn't just she doesn't just, you know, print signs like open for business and she doesn't want to sell them to gay people. This is custom work. And she has to, like, do custom words that offend her. Like those people in Indiana that didn't want to decorate cakes for gay people because it just it just offended them. So Alito is trying to figure out some middle road where they give her the okay to refuse gay people, but don't make it like everybody can now use this, whatever ruling comes down to refuse gay people. Just, you know, this is different. This isn't, yes, it's a public business. And yes, you know, it doesn't, when she does a website, she doesn't, there's nothing about doing that website that's going to harm her in any way. But, you know, she finds it personally offensive. Supposed to be a separation of church and state in this country, isn't there? This is like that Hobby Lobby crap. We're evangelicals, so we don't want to give our employees health insurance that helps pay for contraception. Because you know what? Everybody should be having babies all the time. So anyway, the conservative majority, you can, you know... Place your bets, kids. The conservative majority is going to give her what she wants. The question is, will they will they open up the floodgates that um, anybody who uh, wants to refuse gay people can? Or will they try to write a definition that is extremely narrow and doesn't reach much beyond her and the kind of work she does? I don't know. Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor quoted in the Washington Post that it would be the first time in the Supreme Court's history that it would allow a business open to the public to refuse to serve a customer based on race, sex, religion or sexual orientation. But you know what? I have a feeling won't be the last first we get from this court. We've got to make some changes. This is too important. Let's take a break and get to Rick Smith down in Georgia right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Monday through Friday here on WCPT. In the evenings, you are able to hear the lovely and talented Rick Smith The Rick Smith Show is here every night. Rick has been down in Georgia where the political action is hottest right now and graciously offered to uh, join us and uh, give us an update. Rick, how are you? I am wonderful, Joan. Thanks for taking a little time for us. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. So tell me what you've been doing since you've been in Georgia, who you've been talking to. Well, we've been out talking to union members, talking to voters, trying to you know, get people out to the polls. Because as you know, in these runoffs, it's not about changing hearts and minds. It's about motivating, activating, and engaging people to get out to vote. And, you know, here in Georgia, they, they did something really, really, you know, 
really nasty when they passed SB 202 and made the barriers to vote a little bit more difficult for people. But I got to tell you, the voters of Georgia are the most educated, uh, the most resilient folks that I've ever met. And I think tomorrow when they go, when they finally go to the polls and, and, and get their ballots cast, I think uh, they're going to do that for Reverend Warnock. And uh, the disgrace that is the Herschel Walker campaign will be behind us. Wow. You know, I was reading in the Washington Post today, they were looking at the voting breakdown. And, you know, in Georgia, the way you and I have seen in lots of states across the nation, sometimes it seems like the blue-red split is more of a rural-urban divide. And that certainly seems to be the case in Georgia. Have you been getting a sense of what's going on in the minds of rural voters there? Well, I mean, you you really can't get excited to vote for Herschel Walker. I've I've talked to a lot of people, especially some some rural union members who have, you know, they're they're not thrilled to vote for him. And I'm I'm thinking a lot of them are probably going to stay home. At least that's the hope anyway. But, you know, there's this this red hat, blue hat thing. Uh, you know, I've had a number of people tell me, well, you know, the other guy's a socialist, so i got to vote for the guy who I can't understand and who can't put a sentence together and makes no sense because he wears the red hat. And I wish we could get by that. So as we're talking to these people, we're talking about the things that Reverend Warnock has done. And look, you know, the Teamsters that I've been talking to, it's all about saving their pensions. Uh, you know, Reverend Warnock, you know, cast a vote to, to get the Butch Lewis Act passed, which say, saved hundreds of thousands of union members uh, their pensions and secured pensions for for workers for decades to come. You know that that has gotten their attention. So when you start talking about how things affect their lives and the votes that are cast, I'm hoping that 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 you know makes us take the red hat or the blue hat off and actually start talking about facts and talking about you know policies that are going to make our lives better. Yeah, I agree with you, but you know the question is. How do we do that? Because a lot of the red hats are seem so, you know, I was talking to a, um, one guy who really analyzed the differences in this country right now. And and with the red hats, so much of it, it isn't it isn't like, well, I'm making this decision and I take I'm taking this stance and voting for these candidates, not because of the facts I have, but because of how I feel because of yeah. this community I'm a part of. And that seems like an insurmountable wall, Rick. And it is. And it, what has to happen is, and it's the reason we did our Working Class Heroes radio tour, to get out in these communities where Democrats have abandoned and labor for the most part has left them behind when the factories left. You've got to get back in there and you've got to create new communities. You've got to reach out to people and take the abuse. Look, I've been taking a good week and a half of abuse from people, you know, talking about, you know, and, and having these, these hard conversations and then trying to find that ground of saying, look, you know, at the end of the day, Politics is about who gets what. And the sad reality is the wealth class of this country has been getting everything they want. Why you and me, the people who work on these docks and drive these trucks and pick up people's trash, we're getting the short end of every stick. And when you start talking about how how it affects both of our lives, people with the red hats and the blue hats, we start thinking about terms as I talk about. It's not about the red hats or the blue hats. It's about the hard hats. It's about the people (laughs) who do the work in this country. It's about the people who who collect a paycheck that never goes far enough, that never meets our needs and never meets the the future needs of our children and our families. It's about recreating an economy that's going to be good for all of us. 
So when you start talking to people and really having those those conversations, instead of throwing platitudes at each other and you know in social media posts and you know, the Twitter sphere, when you get face to face with somebody and you have a real conversation. We're our best. We're our best versions of ourselves in that environment. On social media, we're our worst versions of ourselves. But when you sit down and you talk with somebody, I do believe some of the conversations we've had have changed some people's thoughts. You know, they're not going to change. They're not going to take off their red hat right away. But you've got to make those overtures. You've got to try, and we haven't tried. Well, give enough. me an example in the conversations you've had with people. What's one? bullet point that you've talked about where you think you may have made inroads? At the end of the day, for, for the people that I've talked to, it's all about the pension. Uh, it's it's about these are folks who are having their pensions taken from them, uh, their their parents, their 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 relatives, their friends, uh, their pensions were on the verge of collapse because the reality is when I started in the LTL less than truckload industry it was eighty five percent unionized it's down to five percent now because of Carter's deregulation and Reagan's abuse of it and the assault on organized labor in this country uh, multi employer pension funds were under attack. And a lot of people are going to lose their pensions and, and people are going, look, this is how this affects me personally. So when you start talking about how politics, not in the abstract, not, hey, I know somebody who knows somebody, but how it affects you and how it affects me. When you start talking brass tacks, you get people's ears to perk up when politics becomes personal and it talk, mm-hmm. becomes about your community, you know, be it your community at work, be it your community at home. People start to listen more. When, and again, when you have these face-to-face interactions, uh, it's a lot harder to, to be your worst version of yourself. Speaking of things like pensions, though, I mean, I am not an expert on what's going on in Georgia. But from what I see in Illinois, uh, it has always been Democratic leaders who have funded pensions and protected pensions. And when we had a disastrous Republican governor, Bruce Rauner, I mean, he yep. did everything in his power to to undermine working people. I mean, maybe that's just in Illinois. I, I suspect it happens elsewhere as well. So why does worrying about your pensions mean you vote Republican? What is this myth? The Republicans, one, I think one of the best things they've been able to accomplish is this myth that somehow people flourish more under their rule than under Democratic rule. And I don't understand how they back it up because it ain't true. Well, I mean, the reality is, is, you know, they believe both parties are just as bad uh, when it comes to their economic interests. And I got to be honest with you, Joan, you know, the Democrats have not always been the great champions of working people that I want them to be. Uh, I looked just this past week. You, know, you had President Biden who did something I am not thrilled with. Uh, they could have handled this in a much different way. They could have handled this. Talking about the rail strike stuff? In a, in a, yes, they could have handled that in a much better way. But instead, the optics, and look, I heard it from members here, especially UPS members who are saying, hey, if we go on strike next year, what, what's the Biden administration going to do to us? Uh, but it know, was, Democrats don't they understand that it was the Republicans? I mean, the Democrats in the House of Representatives, they voted to support a seven days of sick leave. It was Republicans who voted yep. it down. Does that message not get through, Rick? No, no, no. That was performative. And everybody knows that that was a performative gesture. They knew it wasn't going to pass. If you really believed it, you would have put it in one bill and you would have made the Republicans voted down and you would have, you would have hung it on them. 
But the reality is, is they didn't do that. They played, they played this shell game. And, and look, working people aren't stupid. They knew that bill was never going to go anywhere. But what Democrats did is they opened the door for the Marco Rubios, the Ted Cruz's, the Josh Hollies, the Mike Braun's, the Lindsey freaking Graham's. Um, and the, the John Kennedys to come out and say, oh, we're, we're pro-worker. We're going to support this, knowing that that bill was never going to pass the Senate. And we opened the door for them to say, look, we're pro-worker. Uh, they would have they moved one piece of legislation, forced the Republicans in the Senate to do something. Then you would have had some courage. Um, and look, the president could have gone, if it went down, could have said, hey, we're going to have another cooling off period to get on the other side of the holiday. But this was the worst. Everyone agrees this is the worst option, especially days before this this runoff election, because that's all I've been hearing about, to be honest with you. So having these conversations, admitting that, hey, you know, the politics are what they are um, and, and being honest with each other instead of throwing platitudes at each other. I think these are the conversations that have to be had. And I'm glad I came down here and I'm, I'm glad people are doing this. This runoff has been, you know, for me, very eye opening experience for, for how we organize the South and how we maybe reclaim parts of it. We need to take a break, Rick. I want to, this is fascinating stuff. I want to continue this conversation. I'm talking to Rick Smith. You can hear the Rick Smith show every night here on WCPT. Listen on your computer. If you live too away, too far away from the city of Chicago to get our signal, get a better signal on the computer anyway. We'll be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with Rick Smith, who has been down in Georgia talking to voters. Tomorrow, of course, is the final day to vote to go to the polls to decide whether Raphael Warnock or Herschel Walker will be going to the Senate. Uh, You can hear Rick every night, Monday through Friday, here on WCPT. His show airs from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. You can listen live on your radio. You can listen on one of the apps that our station is on. And you can also listen through your computer which you can uh, do pretty much anywhere in the country. Uh, Rick was just talking about how he has been spending um, some of his time there in Georgia, getting out and about and talking with rural voters. Like, where have you gone uh, to talk to people, Rick? Well, we, we're, we're based in Atlanta right now, but we've gone up to Conyers and to, to Marietta and, and the surrounding suburbs and, and you know, where, where, the, where the union members are. And, and talking to them and going to their homes and knocking on doors and, and having these conversations. And, and look, you know, the reality is what it is. You know, people are, are, are we've been put into these silos. And I say this all the time, as the economy gets tougher, as the, the hunger games continues, people go to the poll, to the opposite polls, to the, to the extremes politically. Um, you know, I keep saying that if we can, we can have an economy that works for everyone, where we do what Joe Biden's been doing, rebuilding manufacturing, investing in infrastructure, creating good union jobs, that's going to pull us back together. I think the only way we bring this country back to the middle of the road, back to some bit of, of, of sanity, is by, by sharing the prosperity of this country. And we do that through our unions mm-hmm. uh, and the jobs that are created. You know, the number of stories of people that I've talked to who have told me that, that being a union member has changed their life. They got health security. There's some retirement securities on the road. They got good wages that support their family. They've got a community of people that help them. This this is the message that that you know 
is being by the the labor union down here is being touted as the way forward. And their response is, look, there's there, there are two guys running in this in this race. One guy supports the pro act. One guy does not. One guy doesn't know what he supports and what he doesn't. To be honest, Herschel Walker doesn't know what his belief structures are. He'll be he will be told what to do, and that will be whatever the Republicans have been doing the last forty years. In reality, Republicans hate working people. Just look at their policies, and and I think that's the message they're going to the people with, saying, "Look, you know, it's about making lives better." The kind of the stuff I talk about all the time. How do we move the ball forward? How do we build an economy that works for everyone? And you know, and I think Trump was the the canary in the coal mine, and I I think we've talked about this before. You know, the, the reality is people want that security of decent wages and, and health and retirement security. They want that. And if they can't have it, that that fear and desperation creates creates these extremes. And mm-hmm. and I, again, I keep thinking the only way we move back together is is by strengthening our unions and strengthening our ability to fight for better wages, hours, conditions at work. I I agree. And I think that more so than any president of recent times, You know, President Biden has shown himself to be a friend of the unions. But I don't know. You know, I've interviewed when Trump was still in office. I used to um, talk to a lot of union leaders and some of them, you know, would say to me, you know, I understand that while we understand that Democrats are our best opportunity to get more union members and grow unions, a lot of our rank and file uh, are really enamored of of Donald Trump and what he represents, and and they were kind of scratching their heads. And it's uh, how can you scratch Tr- your head, Joan. How how can they <laughs> scratch their head? Donald Trump's message to the working people was their message. He stole their message. Uh, bring back manufacturing. Invest in the country. Support workers. I mean. You know, I, I, I talk about this all the time, and this is what drives me insane about about uh, political consultants and Democratic strategists. Because right now they're all they're all enamored with the John Fetterman race. Oh, what we go to all sixty seven counties in Pennsylvania, and every vote matters, and every voter matters, and we, we talk to rural people. Really, we do that? Of course, you do. You know, the reality is that you know. I talk about my family often. My family is the basket of deplorables. They were always racist. They were always homophobic. They were always misogynistic. They've always so. How was Thanksgiving? Cleveland, Cleveland is a very segregated city. All of that stuff is there. It's what I grew up with. So these, it's not surprising that these people have these tendencies. They've always had them, but they never voted because of that. They mm-hmm. voted for Donald Trump because because he was going to bring Brooke Park. Avenue back. He was going to bring the flats back. He were going to. He was going to bring those manufacturing jobs that gave them security and dignity and a purpose. He was going to bring back their pride and their hope and their opportunities. And they bought it. They internalized the con. They internalized what he was selling. And he was never going to be able to do it. And 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 never even tried to do it. And that's the part that's that's the that's the frustrating part. But to say they don't know why their members are voting for the, this guy, this this charlatan, this con man, I don't I don't believe that. That message of we're going to bring back jobs, we're going to bring back opportunity and hope for the working class. That's the message of labor unions, and Trump stole that from them. Well, that and is the me, message, though, that Joe Biden has been trying to repeat. Yep. Uh, every place that he visits, every 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 little stump speech he makes, um, he has been Absolutely. talking about that over and over again. 
But my sense is, and maybe I'm wrong, but my sense is for some reason when Biden, who's actually gotten an infrastructure bill passed, actually gotten some writing in there that certain jobs are going to be union jobs, it doesn't seem like he's gotten that same kind of fervor that Trump got when he made empty promises to the same effect. Do you think what do you think yeah, about that? No, I, I absolutely 100 percent agree with you. It's one of the things I scream about all the time. It's because Democrats are terrible at messaging. There should be a giant 15 foot Joe Biden pointing at something saying, I did that sign on every project that was that was worked on because of the infrastructure bill. We should take those idiotic signs that morons were slapping on gas pumps, pumps saying Biden did this and slap it on every factory that returns to this country because of our investment and every road and every bridge that's and every interest in the broadband access we're going to get. There should be giant Joe Biden pointing at things saying, yeah, I did that all over the place because Democrats don't do that. Biden's just doing the work. He's, you know, he's 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 you know, lunchbox Joe. He's going doing the hard work, not wanting credit for it. It's the same thing unions do. They make lives better. Do you ever hear them toot their own horn? Never. They got to get out there and do the PR work. Trump was all about the, hey, look at me. Hey, look how wonderful I am. Love me. Love my message. I'm not doing anything for you. But he was a master at PR. Democrats are terrible at messaging. The rail situation is a perfect example. And I go back to this. There was a better way to handle this. Instead of, look, Joe Biden is the most pro-labor president of my lifetime. That is hands down without question. He did that on day one when he fired Peter Robb from the NLRB, the guy who was behind the the Patco firings. For me, that was a good start. But that messaging that that just happened around, there was never going to be a rail, rail strike. We knew that. But the messaging out of it was horrible. This could have been a great opportunity, Joan. If it were me, and I'm just saying what I would have done, this would have been a great opportunity. You put one bill forward, you make the Republicans who you know are going to vote it down, and then you get out there and say, this is a reason why every working person in this country needs to have paid sick days. Democrat, Republican, independent, agnostic, green, I don't care. Every person who has a job has, should have the dignity of being able to stay home and take care of themselves when they're, they're sick and not have to worry about being fired or or discipline, or lose pay. This could have been a rallying moment to bring people together to to to, to rise up and fight for for a better opportunity. Instead, well, we got. This. Do you think they got scared, Rick? Do you think that the prospect of a strike and how that might clear out the grocery store shelves and everybody would blame Joe Biden for that? Do you think the fear of the repercussions of a strike are what motivated this split off? Or do you think, you know, I could kind of see where in some inner circles they could say, oh, we'll have a separate standalone bill about sick leave. And then we can really pin that on the Republicans, um, you know, because they won't have any any way to hide saying, well, there were things about the rest of the bill they didn't like. They'll have to vote up or down on that. Maybe it was a strategy that just went awry. No, it was it was an afterthought, bad strategy, because they were shocked that that the deal that they had hammered out wasn't accepted. 
And it was over this one thing that when you educate people on, because people can't believe, right-wingers can't believe that these railroad engineers and conductors have no time to make a dentist appointment six six months down the road. If they get sick, they can't take off. There's no time for them. They're on call 24-7, 365. Their lives are not their own. These people literally live to work. This was the perfect messaging moment to be able to go, we need to make lives better. And all these guys wanted were a couple of sick days. Extremely reasonable. There was nothing radical about their demands. Something so reasonable that they could have included it in the bill and and forced Republicans to vote for it because it was that reasonable. There are Republicans on those rail lines. There are Republicans in those districts that work on those rail lines. This would have been a moment to really push that. Now, at the end of it, we both know there was never going to be a strike allowed because it would be detrimental to our economy. That was never going to happen. And I said it over the summer when someone asked, do you think there's going to be a strike? No, there's never going to be a strike on the rail. No president's going to allow it. But at least you, you, you message it better. You play the chess game better. The president could have, after it failed, said we're going to have another cooling off period. Took us on the other side of the holiday to, to hammer something out. We could have embarrassed the rail companies who made $23 billion profit last year and $22.1 billion in the first three quarters of this year. They have made more money. (laughs) They have made more money in profit than they've probably ever made in, in my lifetime in a year. And yet they're still holding on to, it's not that we can't afford it, Joan. It's that we don't want to. And the real, the real argument here is, And the thing that nobody's talking about is the railroads have shed thousands of employees. They've fired thousands of people and cut down to the bone where they don't have someone to come in if someone gets Mm -hmm. sick. There are no reserves. These poor guys are working to the bone. This uh, this, uh, precision scheduled railroading is all about railroading the employees. So the strategy that you are taking to task here that the Democrats employed to to deal with this crisis. Is it aides in the White House? Is it uh, people advising Joe Biden? Was it Nancy Pelosi? Was it Hakeem Jeffries? You know, where do you think this went awry? Why was there no voice in that group saying what you're saying now? Personally, what I think is Jamie Harrison. I don't know. No, not Jamie Harrison. I, he's out. Who knows? He's got a podcast. Um, <laughs> I, I think it was they were surprised. I think they were taken kind of aback. With, well, I don't, don't know why. And I think the neoliberal wing of, of the, the administration said, hey, you can't do this. They feared them into there's going to be a strike. It's going to be the end of the economy and all of that stuff. And look, the labor community, I've been trying to get a message out of the, out of the rail unions. I've been trying to get an answer on, hey, what are you guys advocating for? I'm being told that there was no leadership there. Uh, I've had some people in Congress who have said, you know, we were we were looking to them for guidance and there was nothing. So it was just a matter of bad. Well, wasn't it? Um, bad, it wasn't bad. just one union. Wasn't weren't there like 12 or 14 different unions that no, there was. The- there, there are 12 unions, eight of them accepted the agreement, four did not. And it was the four who needed the, the sick time. They mm-hmm. got great raises. They got a lot of language that they want, a 24% raise over five years, as I understand. Everybody I talked to in the rail yards was happy with what, what the contract was, but they all agreed on one thing. They agreed that the rail unions would be in solidarity, all 12 of them. If one union refused it, all of them would refuse it. And that, again, is a picture. 
gesture of solidarity that we should take a look at and go, I respect that, and we stand with them. And look, I wouldn't have crossed their picket line if they went on, on strike. Wouldn't do it. I'd have just gone home. But I look at this as a failure of communication top to bottom, failure of strategy. I think Nancy Pelosi did the best she could do at the moment that she had, which was to run these two bills, because there was there was no coordination there. And and the messaging, and I go back to, you know, as I'm talking to, to people, to UPS workers, and I'm getting emails from, from UPS workers in Chicago who are saying, you know, if we go on strike next year, what's the administration going to do to us? Now, exactly. It's not much. Not much because they're different labor laws. The railroads are covered under the Railway Labor Act. UPS is under the National Labor Relations Act. You know, there's there's a whole bunch of different things. Um, Biden didn't do what Truman threatened to do, which was to draft all of the strikers and and then make them work as as, as soldiers on the trains. Um, you know, because we don't allow the strikes the, the trains to go on strike. I mean, George W. George H. W. Bush did the exact same thing Biden did back in the nineties. Um, this is not surprising. It's not shocking. My problem is the messaging that came out of it and the tactic that they used. That's my problem. Rick, we need to take a break for news at the top of the hour. Rick Smith, uh, who you hear every night here on WCPT from 8 to 10, he is down in Georgia. We are going to continue this discussion right after we take a break for news. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am talking with Rick Smith. You hear him every night here on WCPT from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. You can listen on your computer. You can listen on your radio. You can listen on one of the many apps that carry WCPT and uh, HeartlandSignal.com. Rick is down in Georgia. Rick, how long have you been down there? Uh, It's been a little over a week and a half. When you plan a a trip like this, when you know that you really want to get a feel for what's going on and talk to some of the some of the power players, but just a lot of the regular voters as well. How did you um, how did you plan this out? Um, Where did you decide ahead of time were the important places for you to be? Well, me as a union guy, as as a labor guy, I want to be in the heart of where the labor movement is in this state, and that's here in Atlanta, where the uh, where there's there's a good solid union density here. So I've I've hooked up with the AFL CIO here, my Teamsters Union, uh, with you know, with the ATU and with, with other unions here uh, to talk about what they're out doing, the work that they're doing, what their members are saying to them. Uh, today I had an opportunity to talk with Reverend Warnock. I got to meet meet with John Ossoff for a couple of minutes. Uh, we have this 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 opportunity to to really talk about you know how are we going to make people's lives better, and then for me. I look at, at Reverend Warnock, and I can't believe it's even even a race at this point, because you know when you when I brought up the Pro Act, he he was on point. Got to have this. This is why. These are the important parts of it. This is the what we need to get this passed. I I, I don't know that Herschel Walker can spell Pro Act, and and that's a problem for me. I mean, I look at Walker as someone who shouldn't even be allowed to walk past the Senate, let alone have be seated in it. And this is where I'm look, I, I'm struggling in this moment that we're this divided, that we're this red hat, blue hat. Uh, and what's interesting is, you know, even even some of the Republican voters are are like, yeah, I, I, I can't believe he's 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 running. Uh, so I'm, I, tomorrow will be interesting when we look back at what the results are. 
Uh, we'll see what SB202 was able to accomplish for Republicans as they tried to steal this election by putting way too many barriers and obstacles in the way of, of people voting. But also, you know, what the independents did, whether they came out um, and, and which way they broke. Uh, for me, this is a fascinating race. Yeah, it is really fascinating. And after the midterms, I was looking at the analysis and the number of Republicans who cast a vote for Brian Kemp and yet did not cast a vote seemingly at all in the in the Senate race. Um, and, I, you know, I understand that there are people who are so um, so into their party that it's like, you know, the worst person in my party is always better to vote for than the absolute best person on the other side of the aisle. But I think I think Herschel Walker strains that even that that kind of loyalty. Um, I mean, the fact that I mean, in those last few interviews that I've seen, I mean, he's he's made some appearances on his own. But for the most part, it's like he appears now with a handler. Ted Cruz is sitting by his side. Rick Scott is sitting by his side. Somebody sometimes they're they're bookending him one on either side. And it's just, you know, it's you are handlers. And uh, there was an ad. I don't think I pulled it off to play on the air. Raphael Warnock ran an ad and there was one woman who she was an older black woman and she said look at that she said they're telling him what to do and what to say and if he ends up in the senate that's exactly the same thing that's going to happen white men are going to be telling him where to go and what to do and what to say yeah, I, there's there's no there's no question about that. Now, for me, you know, they're, they've been running a lot of ads. The airwaves are saturated with ads here. Uh, the one that grabs my attention is anytime, you know, an ex, you know, says, you know, the first time he put a gun to my head. That's kind of a disqualifier for me. That's one of those things where you go. The why? First what? Why isn't it, second? Rick? I mean, come on. This guy is supposedly pro-life, and yet he's paid for multiple abortions. He has held a gun. He has said to his audience that he's been diagnosed with a pretty serious mental illness. But, you know, he's past that now. How, how does a human being like that get any support? Well, I'll tell you, the, I, I came across a gentleman in the, in, his, in the lunchroom reading his Bible, and what his response to me was, because I brought up the, do you have to be his girlfriend to get an abortion, and the wife with the gun to that thing, and he said, well, you know, sometime God, sometimes God sends an empty vessel to do his work. And uh, the is, is I heard that when of, people were trying to defend their support of Donald Trump. You know, especially evangelicals, when they were trying to defend, well, you know, he's an, he's imperfect, but if he gets us where we need to go, and I, uh, that yep, just drives no, me crazy. An vessel. And, and yeah, he's an imperfect vessel who held a gun to his wife's head multiple times, who has claimed to play Russian roulette multiple times because he loves competition. This is not somebody who I want making policy for my children. This is not somebody that I want being part of that process on how we move this country in a in a in a forward direction. And and again, I keep coming back to I think we have to point out the the ridiculous. 
I think we have to have conversations and, and, and give and take. And that's what, that's one of the reasons I came down here was to be able to do some of this. You know, when you're standing on someone's, you know, their porch and you're talking to them about, you know, how their life is going and what, what they want from their government and the kind of help that they could use. I, I think you start changing some, some, some thought processes. You're not going to change their hearts and minds at this moment, but by reaching out, by having these, these, these moments, I, I don't see anything bad that comes out of it. The people who you've spoken to who say they're going to vote for Herschel Walker, let's set aside once the um, the the imperfect vessel folks. Mark, what other Mark, what other things have people said that uh, that they like about him? There's, this is the thing. No one has said they're voting for Herschel Walker. I've never heard anyone go. I like that guy. I haven't heard that. I've heard when you say, why are you voting for Herschel Walker? Because, well, Warnock's a socialist. I've gotten that a buck. You know what, Rick? What what do you think people mean? To me, that's one of those words that has become so meaningless. Or everybody who uses it has an idea of what they think it means, but that might not be what I think it means or what you think it means. The people who've said that to you, what the heck does that mean? I I usually follow that up with, well, can you spell Marxist? (laughs) Let's go there first, because obviously you haven't looked it up in a dictionary because you don't know what it is. So we start there and it usually comes that that's usually met with a laugh because we're, we're, we now start to joke around. Come on, Marxist. Do you even know what a Marxist is? And then we, we, we kind of have a moment where we're, we're banging that around a little bit. Um, because, you know, I think people do recognize when, when you call them on it, but it is kind of ridiculous. The reality is, is this is what right wing media has done to this country. It's radicalized people to immediately, if they don't agree with somebody, label them as something that they view as a boogeyman. And we've been trained like Pavlovian dogs to anytime we hear socialism to, to, you know, to run or Marxism to run. And, and the reality is, is when you start talking about you know, the things that we want, some of it is socialism a little bit, Social Security, unemployment benefits, workers' compensation. Well, that's the thing, you know, though. If you I, I, what I my experience is when you ask somebody if uh, so, if they want to give up Social Security, if they're so against socialism or if they even see it as socialism, they'll be, oh, well, no, that's obviously Social Security isn't socialism, Rick. Don't you know that? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Monty Python movie. You remember the old yes. Monty Python movie? What have the Romans done for us? Well, the aqueducts, you know, cleaned up the streets. Well, of course, that uh, kind of that same kind of thing. I wish you know, I wish someone creative on the left would come up with a Monty Python kind of what have the Democrats ever done for us kind of thing. That, that would actually be fun. Yes, I think it would be informative as well. Uh, Rick Smith and I are going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with a little bit more of this discussion right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You can hear the Rick Smith Show every night here on WCPT from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. He has been down in Georgia. There's a big vote tomorrow. We're going to find out if Raphael Warnock or Herschel Walker is going to be the next elected senator from Georgia. Uh, Rick has been talking to people. We have been talking about some of the campaigning that's gone on down there. Uh, Rick, I want to share with you in the audience uh, just a small clip from a talk that President Obama made recently when he was campaigning for Raphael Warnock down in Georgia. Listen to this. 
Every day he comes up with something. Every day. Since the last time I was here, <laughs> since the last time I was here, Mr. Walker has been talking about issues that are of great importance to the people of Georgia. Like whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf. This is a debate that I must confess I once had myself. <laughs> when I was seven. <laughs> then I grew up. In case you're wondering, by the way, Mr. Walker decided he wanted to be a werewolf. Which is great. As far as I'm concerned, he can be anything he wants to be. Except for a United States Senator. Since the last time I, since the last time I was here, apparently he also claimed that he used to let me beat him at basketball. But then he admitted that we've never actually met. So I guess this was more of an imaginary whooping that I laid on him. Now, listen, this would be funny if he weren't running for Senate. We all know some folks in our lives who we don't wish them ill will. They say crazy stuff. We're all like, well, you know, Uncle Joe, you know what happened to him. You know, it's okay. It, it, they're part of the family, but you don't give them serious responsibilities. How effective, Rick, do you think uh, Barack Obama has been on the campaign trail for Raphael Warnock? Oh, I think he's been incredibly effective. He's somebody who energizes people. If, if Joe Biden could have one-tenth of the ability to, to, to rouse a crowd and to deliver a line like, like Obama, look, you know, Clinton and Obama were fabulous orators. Uh, they were fabulous at riling a crowd. They were fabulous at delivering a message. Uh, I think Biden's doing a great job of doing the work. I wish uh, I, I wish Obama would have done the kind of work that I wanted him to do back when he was president as well as he speaks. But, you know, I think he does. I think he energizes and, and, and gets people fired up and ready to vote. I'm thrilled to see him. I'm so thrilled to see him here. Wish he'd have done a little bit more. You talked about Bill Clinton also being a great orator. Do you think somebody can be taught to be that or are you just born that way, Rick? No. No, they're they're just very charismatic. They're they're good communicators. That you could you can learn to do it a little bit better, but you you don't have that kind of that's that's natural. I mean, at least I believe it is. Uh, you know, I, I'm in I'm in envy of the both of them at their ability uh, to to tell stories and to communicate and connect with people. And I've met them both. And and you know, when you're in their presence, they, they you know they have something. Yeah, you know, there's mm-hmm. something there that that draws you to them. That you know, in that moment, they make you feel that that you're the only person in the room. Uh, they're very good at that. And and I've met President Biden a couple of times. Uh, he's a guy. He's you know, he's like he's one of the guys. He's one of the guys who he's he, let's get to work. He's the kind of guy I believe would put on a pair of gloves and go go get to work with you. Uh, I never got that with President Obama. 
as I said, I've, sh- I've shook his hand a couple of times, softest hands of any man I've ever met. <laughs> uh, but that's not why I voted for him. Well, you know, uh, no, people no, make no, fun no. Of, of Joe Biden, um, the way he speaks, when, to me, it's obvious there is a, you know, he doesn't like to talk about the fact that he struggles with a lisp, but it's obvious if right. you've if you've ever been around anybody like that, his cadences, where he pauses, the way you can see him think sometimes before he says a word. I mean, that's not, you know, people say, oh, well, look at him, you know, he's just slow, he's old, he's... He's taking a nap and that that really infuriates me. But, you know, it yeah. doesn't you're but it certainly doesn't make for a dynamic speaking ability. No, no. But here's the thing. I love the I love the dynamics of he's slow and he's old and he's sleepy Joe. And then on the other side, he's, you know, this this mastermind who stole the election, learned coding in the basement during the pandemic and masterfully won the election for himself. But not, you know, an overwhelming victory for in the Senate and the House and and how he's doing all he did all this work to destroy the country. It's, which is it? Is it that he's yeah. a super genius who's destroying the country or you got to have a, a wet nurse to keep him awake? Which is it? Pick a side. Um, and this is, again, this is where having conversations are important. And, you know, as we were talking earlier, I was remembering probably the most productive conversation I had here was in the hotel lobby. Um, you know, I walked down to the hotel and I've, I've got a, a, a Teamsters jacket on that has a, an American flag on it. And a guy, you know, kind of walked out to me and he goes, you here for Warnock? And I go, yeah, I'm, I'm here covering that. And he goes, well, then you take that American flag off your jacket. And I just turned to him and I looked at him and go, you know, FCC friendly, blank you. Feel free to go blank yourself. And he, he was kind of t- shocked by that. And, you know, I proceeded. He was shocked to by that. He said something he that rude and insulting to you. And he, what were you supposed yeah. to do? Cower? Yeah, look, yeah, and I, look, I'm a big guy. I'm not I'm not somebody who's ever going to hold my tongue. But you know what? After that, he kind of you know, kind of you could see his demeanor change. And we sat and talked for about 35 minutes after that. And actually, we were able to find, you know, some some things we agreed on. That, you know, manufacturing does need to be brought back. All these communities that used to be somewhere, Toledo, Ohio, used to be the glass capital of the world. Akron used to be the rubber capital. You know, you go down the list of, you know, Detroit used to be the the auto capital. All these used to be places that used to have, you know, workers who used to have good wages. You know, we agreed on that. He said, look, you go all through the South, the South, the rural communities are littered with factories that have moved to Mexico and 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 to China. And this was, again, the place where I come back to. This is where I think Joe Biden needs to get out and do more talking about the successes and the work that that they're doing. And if not Biden, then, you know, some surrogates going, hey, Joe Biden did this. They're bringing this stuff back to rural communities. In Columbus, Ohio, they're building a giant Intel plant that's going to create, you know, a couple thousand jobs. Not just having a a shovel ceremony in, in Wisconsin with a golden shovel giving away billions of dollars to Foxconn, but actually creating jobs and reshoring manufacturing. Uh, this is where we reunite us. Even with the guy who I had to go, I had to put him in his place. You know, he was about ready to get slapped. Because uh, then my grandfather always said, you know, sometimes you got to slap somebody to make a citizen out of them. And he was, he was almost to that point. But we, we then put down our guards and we had a really productive conversation. And I think as a country, we need that. I think we need to put down our guards, have a beer 
and sit down and talk with each other and then come together on how we move forward and make our lives better. Because the more we're divided, and I always use the, the quote that's attributed to Jay Gould, I can pay half the working class to murder the other half. We're in that mode, and, and the billionaires aren't even paying anymore. We're doing it to ourselves. We've yeah. got to figure out how to reunite, how to reengage, reinvigorate the working class of this country. And I believe, and again, as a union guy, I believe that's the start of it. And you uh, hit on something when you were talking just now that I've talked about on this show. You know, admittedly, Joe Biden, while he has gotten a lot of things done, he may not be the best orator to make people excited about what he's done. So, so Democratic Party, look, look to see who do you have in Congress? Who do you have in the Senate? Uh, who do you have at the state level who are exciting orators? You know, um, Pete Buttigieg uh, is, handles himself really well. Eric Swalwell handles himself really well. Cory Booker brings a lot of enthusiasm to the table. Find out. I mean, Jamie Raskin, for God's sake, as as um, as intellectual as he can sometimes be, can also be a very passionate, from the heart kind of speaker. Find those people and get them out there. Yeah. No, my, my hope for 2024 or at least 2028 for president, uh, Sherrod Brown. Uh, get, me, get me more Sherrod Browns. Line me up a bunch of them. We need people who are talking about making lives better. Uh, enough of the, the extreme stuff. You know, enough of the fringe stuff. Let's talk about how you're going to make people's lives better. Well, thank you, Rick. You have certainly made my show better today with your presence on it. I appreciate you talking to us about, you know, the people you've been talking to in Georgia and what you see. Are you confident that Raphael Warnock will win? I'm predicting a five point win. Okay. I think that I think at the end of the day, I I don't know that Republicans are going to come out in mass. Uh, There's no Brian Kemp on the ballot. Uh, Like him or not, Kemp did bring out a large vote. Uh, that that cost Warnock this election so far. The cost the original cost him from, have to go through this runoff. There's no draw like that. Uh, and look, at the end of the day, Georgia is what it is, and you you know as well as I do. Uh, I don't know that you're going to get people to come out to vote for Herschel Walker. Um, they're going to come out to vote against Warnock, but I don't think you're going to get the independents to come out in the same numbers. Yeah. Um, but I'll tell you, you, you've got the you, you've got the Atlanta vote, you've got the Savannah vote, you've got the, the heart of of the Democratic Party here in Georgia. You've got them angry, motivated, and ready to, to leap obstacles and hurdles that Brian Kemp and the Republicans put in their way here. So I'm I'm predicting a five point win. I think uh, I think Raphael Warnock is going to be the victor. Rick, thank you so much. I really appreciate this is more than I can say. Um, and you want to hear more Always Rick great. Smith tonight, 8 p.m. WCPT every night, Monday through Friday. He will be here and he's going to be telling you more about the conversations he's having down in Georgia. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. We have been talking about what is going on in Georgia, but there has been some other stuff going on, some things involving uh, Donald Trump and um, his myriad legal woes. Jill Weinbanks, author of The Watergate Girl, former Watergate prosecutor, joins us now. Jill, how are you? I'm excellent, and how are you, Joan? 
I am I am doing pretty good for a Monday. I uh, I gave myself a few days of a news blackout every time Ray, my partner, would try to tell me something. I'd be like, nope, nope, no, Ray, no politics. Nope. So, um, you know, I I steep myself in, you know, I, the New York Times and the Washington Post and the L.A. Times and the Chicago Tribune. And all of these hundreds of thousands of newsletters and substacks that I read. And I realize that those of us who really love all this politics stuff, we tend to do that. But the average person doesn't. And I think sometimes it's good to take a break. Um, and I don't know. How do you feel about that? Because I know with all of the stuff you do for cable news, you have to be ready to go at a moment's notice. Do you ever just say, you know what, not today? No, unfortunately, <laughs> I feel like I can't because on that particular day that I take a break, they're going to call and say, can you talk about? And I'll go, no, I didn't listen today. I was paying no attention. I can't do that. Yeah. So, And I am compulsive about staying up to date on all of the aspects of what is being called January 6th, but which I would say cannot be called January 6th anymore. That means the violence of one particular day. That's not everything that's involved. We need to look at much more than January 6th. We have to look at all the other parts of it. The threats to the state legislators to make them feel pressure, the calls to Georgia, the uh, fake electors plot. All of those things are part of the coup attempt. It's mm-hmm. not just January 6th. So I want people to be aware that it's a much broader problem in threatening democracy. than. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because um, last week I was reading, or maybe even before then, that some of the committee members who have been doing a lot of the work are um, not by name, but let it be known publicly that they were not pleased with Liz Cheney because they said Liz Cheney wants to make the final report just Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. And there have been at least four separate investigations going on by aides and staff and lawyers into, you know, who financed this thing, who organized these things, what what groups might have been involved in what happened on January 6th. And the feeling was, well, the way one put person put it was they felt that by focusing only on Donald Trump, Liz Cheney might be trying to use the January 6th report as a document perhaps to campaign on in 2024. That was the worst of the accusations. And the other accusations were just like, hey, this other work that we've done, you know, following the money and doing all these other things. These things are important, too, and need to be more than just like Appendix B at the end of this report. What did you think of of all that um, controversy? Well, I, I, there's two different aspects to your question. One is, is Liz Cheney the one who is pushing to keep the report solely focused on Trump? And, you know, that seems to be the thing you hear reported the most. What is her reason for doing that is pure speculation. She's done a brilliant job as the co-chair And I hate to take away from her um, because all of the things that are being talked about are pretty negative to her, that she wants to keep it 
so that it doesn't make the Republican Party as a whole look bad because she still hopes to have a future in the Republican Party. Um, I don't know about any of that. And so I can't comment on what, you know, people are speculating. In terms of what I hope the committee report will include, I hope it will be broader than just Donald Trump. Obviously, that's going to be a big focus because he has a big role in in whatever they report on. But there are other people involved, number one, and there are so many more plots than just January 6th, as I was saying, the fake electors and all of that stuff. Plus, they really need to talk about what they have learned and what still needs to be discerned about the failure of the Secret Service, the failure of the FBI, the failure of the Department of Defense. They need to talk about what could the Capitol Police have done if they had had more resources or more information. Those are important, and they must include legislative proposals, things that they think are necessary to prevent a recurrence of all of these things. That would include amending the Electoral Count Act, It would include um, amending the Constitution or creating a law that enforces the emoluments clause of the Constitution. So there's a lot of laws that need to be changed. When they look at how the insurrection statute is phrased, does that need changing to cover anything here that might escape in some, uh, you know, little gap in the law? And, um, They can't. So they have to, I think, include legislative proposals as well. So that's what I'm hoping will be included, much broader than just Donald Trump. Well, one thing that you just touched on is something that has really caught my eye. But I don't think, you know, I've seen anybody in New York Times, Washington Post, anybody do a deep, deep dive. I'm very concerned about what appear to be. I won't call it corruption. Let's just say maybe operational failures at the Secret Service and the FBI. Um, you know, it's it's like danced around. It's it's hinted at, you know, the sort of, you know, it was if the Secret Service knew that there was going to be an excellent chance of violence ahead of January 6th, they seem to have kept it to themselves. There have been other failures reported uh, by uh, by the FBI, and I'm every time I read one of these, Jill, I'm like, this this needs to be investigated. If there is corruption, if there is um, too much pol- politics involved in these organizations, then people need to change. There needs to be a restructuring. I I'm co- very concerned that that hasn't been dug into enough. You've been probably up on this stuff a lot more than me. What do you think of those little nuggets that surface periodically about Secret Service and FBI failures? I agree with what you're saying, and that's why I was saying the report needs to include whatever they have ascertained. But I think that whatever they have ascertained is only the surface and that a lot more needs to be investigated. Now, obviously... The new members of the House, led by Republicans, will not do that. So someone somewhere has to at some point. Um, But they need to report what they have learned so far. And then from there, 
they can go further and more needs to be done. I agree with you. The institutional structural changes that need to be put in place. Um, and I mean, Carol Leoning wrote a wonderful book about the Secret Service that may be as much a part of the, the foundation for what needs to be looked at to find out what is wrong and can we trust them to protect Joe Biden? That's a, a worry to me. Uh, and and any other future president if they have been taken in by Donald Trump. Um, you have agents who wouldn't, you know, said, oh, Cassidy Hutchinson, that's not true. But they aren't testifying under oath. They're not saying what exactly. they say under oath. And that's a problem. They need to be called in. Um, and it looks like um, one of them has now been called to testify. Privately, and though. Well, but if it's under oath, it's under oath. Um, obviously, I want to know what he said, but hopefully they said they are releasing all of the transcripts at the end of their term so that the Department of Justice will have them and that the American people will have it. And I, for one, will be reading those very carefully and looking for what um, Tony Arnato said and others. Do you believe that what we will get is a summary of what they've learned? Or do you think we will get pages of verbatim testimony? Because I guess I I didn't have as much faith in what I might learn in the report because I figured it'll just be, well, we talked to a bunch of people and they said this. I think given how they handled the hearings and how they put together a narrative and presented a a storyline, something that you could read and follow and understand, that they will do the same thing in the report. They will tell a compelling story that is obviously they interviewed thousands. They have thousands and thousands of pages of transcript. No one is going to, I shouldn't say no one. uh, I might, but very few people are going to read all of that. And so they have to summarize it. It's like an executive summary that will say, in some combination, we had testimony from X, he said, and it'll summarize it. Um, but it'll do it in a story way, either organized as they have in the past by the possible crime. You know, here's the evidence of this particular crime. Here's the evidence of that crime. As opposed to, we had testimony from Mr. Smith who talked about A, B, C, and D. No, they're going to talk about, here's the evidence of the crime A, evidence of crime B. I suspect they're going to do a very good job of telling the story and making it readable and short enough that people will actually read it. I just hope that the people who refuse to accept facts, that is those people who continue to support Trump, even in the face of his saying, let's terminate the Constitution, um, that maybe this will be the document that gets them. But that may be overly optimistic, even for me, who is a perpetual optimist. (laughs) Well, I was one of the few people who enjoyed reading the Mueller report, particularly this stuff on Russia. I kept telling people, don't you understand? It's like a spy novel. You you know, just get in there. But I will I will admit that the Mueller report um, was not user friendly. And I think that I hope that this. Uh, this January 6th committee is much more savvy than um, 
then, you know, they saw what went before, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, the Mueller report wasn't read by too many people, at least not cover to cover the way it, it should have been. And I hope to God they've learned that lesson. Uh, I don't care if they put it out as a graphic novel. I just want something <laughs> that more people will read. Um, Jill Wine-Banks and I are going to continue our conversation after we take a quick break. We'll be back. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am speaking with Jill Wine-Banks. We are talking about what is going on at the national level. And uh, the Watergate Girl author just mentioned that uh, recently Donald Trump said, Oh, this, it's just like it's 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 like theater, Jill, that he wants to terminate the Constitution. And, you know, after Jill, after he had dinner with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, I had never really looked too deeply into Nick Fuentes, but I I got some clips from him. And, you know, I can see why he was thrilled to have Nick Fuentes there. Nick Fuentes says the same thing. Nick Fuentes said that Don, we should we should reelect Donald Trump to the presidency, and then we should stop having elections. He said this quite seriously. Then Donald Trump should just stay. So really, Donald Trump, as as I see it, is approaching the same idea, just from a different direction. Yeah, reelect me, and then we'll you know we'll get rid of that messy Constitution. Nobody, let's face it, Jill. Nobody can really agree on what it says anyway, right? <laughs> right, right. It's. It is very troubling. And, you know, I hadn't seen the connection between the two. So it may be that Donald Trump's last um, posting on his own social media platform, which I will not name, um, was the result of his dinner with Nick Fuentes. Maybe he's just learning from a really awful right wing anti-Semitic um racist person and he's just saying what that person says um, but whether he was inspired by him or not it is a horrid thing that he said it is truly scary and it goes along with the fact that tomorrow the supreme court is hearing an argument in a case that could empower that to be the law of the land in a case called Moore versus Harper which is the theory about independent state legislators um, and having the legislature of every state not be reviewable by its own state Supreme Court or any federal court, and they can do anything they want, including declare the winner, despite whatever the popular vote of their state was. That's scary. That's terrifying. Um, and especially with the, with the Supreme Court, we can't count on to do the right thing. Right. Although they have... They have been pretty good about saying no to Donald Trump and everything that's come before them about his really frivolous arguments about why he doesn't have to comply with subpoenas and things. It's it's it may be that it's coming out um, to be uh, okay that the Supreme Court, even it has its limits and even it will um, not go so far as it has in the past. There's a conservative columnist I read. He's one of Charlie Sykes' partners, Jonathan Last. And he was writing about, you know, everybody's talking about how, oh, you know, Donald Trump is on the way out and the Republican Party is starting to disown him and blah, blah, blah. Uh, Trump is fading. 
But he pointed out that one thing that he's very worried about is that the people who supposedly are distancing themselves from Trump are not doing it because he was an unfit president and would be unfit to be president again because he is an amoral man with no backbone and um, and no discernible moral compass. They're the people who are distancing themselves, according to Jonathan, are people who are saying, oh, look, his candidates didn't win in the midterm. He's not a winner anymore. Now he's a loser. So we should we should move on. And he said the problem with that argument is if Trump does what he did before in 2016 and knock down primary challengers and come out smelling like a rose, all those people are going to fall in line again. All those people. Well, now he's a winner. Oh, that was the only reason we were turning our backs on him. Didn't look like he was going to win anymore. We don't care that he's amoral. And he said that that's why Donald Trump is believes he's got a shot because nobody mm-hmm. is rejecting him for who he is. They're just saying, you got to prove yourself to us again. And. Um, do you think that the Republican Party is really, truly going to distance themselves from Trump in a way that is meaningful and maybe permanent? I would like to think that, but based on their response to his statement about terminating the Constitution and declaring him the winner uh, when there is absolutely no fraud that was involved so that there'd be no grounds for doing that. Based on their response to that, I have to say they aren't there yet. And there's no reason to think that they will ever get there. Um, Even with the losses they suffered in the midterms because of his antic candidate, they don't seem to be pulling away from him. They still seem to be letting him espouse these completely fraudulent, fact-free statements and they aren't condemning him for saying things that are outrageous. So, no, I can't count on the Republicans to save us from Donald Trump. I can only count on the voters and particularly Democrats to make sure that he doesn't win another election. And independents and sane Republican voters, as opposed to the Republican leadership, which seems to be, I don't know, paralyzed in his uh, the other um, thing that I've been reading from conservative columnists is uh, how people are in a quandary over Ron DeSantis. A, nobody knows if he has the backbone to enter a primary. Trump is already in. Um, and even if he does, and even best case scenario, for some reason, he beats Trump. Everybody's saying, well, look at who Donald Trump is. He's not going to just you know, fold his tent and go quietly off into the night. He is going to do everything in his power to destroy Ron DeSantis. I think that's I think that's a a viable possibility. What are your thoughts on DeSantis and the race? Well, of course, the thing that frightens me is that DeSantis seems to be a better politician that is more effective in passing legislation, more effective in communicating horrible views to the Trump base. And so what I worry about is that he could win and that he would be even worse than Donald Trump. It's hard to think of somebody who would be worse than Donald Trump, um, but he could be. And so I'm frightened about that. And yes, there's no question that 
Donald Trump will do anything in his power to take down any opposition he has, including DeSantis. Um, interesting, they're both from Florida, and we'll have to just wait and see. Yeah, and and I know that some some of the big money is is gravitating toward DeSantis, but um, I don't I don't know. I don't get the impression from Ron DeSantis. I think here's here's a scenario. If Donald Trump does something that seriously weakens his candidacy, say, six, seven, eight months from now, I can't imagine what that would be since, you know, we've got a guy who's an accused rapist, uh, who lies, who blackmails, who uh, commits fraud. Uh, so I can't imagine what it would be that damages him. But if if he per- is perceived as weaker down the road, then maybe, maybe Ron DeSantis might join the race. Um, but I don't know. I just makes him look weaker, I think, is the fact that his hand chosen candidates lost, that he doesn't have good judgment in candidates and that his endorsement no longer makes people win. That may make the Republicans wake up and say he's a loser. Not just himself he lost, but his candidates lose. He doesn't have it anymore. So it is possible that um, it, it's possible that that could be the difference. But so far, they haven't spoken out against him. Uh, so I, I don't know. And I don't know how brave a man this Antis is in terms of whether he would run against him if, if it stays the same as it is now. Yeah, I think the Republican Party is going to be really fascinating to watch. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't take it seriously and we've got to bring everything we've got to 2024. But, you know, I think that there's a a decent chance that this party, at least on the national level, could implode uh, depending upon what Ron DeSantis does, depending upon what Donald Trump does. I mean, I don't think Greg Abbott or Glenn Youngkin, uh, either of them are are strong enough to to stand up to Trump. And I don't know that Ron DeSantis would survive it. I mean, it's I sort of feel, Jill, like it's like we're about to watch a car accident in slow motion. Yes. And, and you haven't even mentioned the people like McCarthy, like McConnell, like Jim Jordan, who are going to be leading Congress and who have national platforms, not just, um, you know, DeSantis has a statewide platform, although at this point he has name recognition that may be national, but not as national as McCarthy and McConnell and Jim Jordan, um, Mark Meadows even. I mean, these are people who have national recognition now and who could do could speak out, but so far have chosen not to. They have remained silent in the face of horrible threats to our democracy. Yes, well, I'm glad you'll be here to watch it with me, Jill. (laughs) (laughs) I wish we could say that it was going to be all over and that someone decent would be, because I believe in the two-party system. I would like to see someone with decent opposition policies and decent moral values and a respect for the Constitution and the rule of law be the candidate of the Republican Party. I remember when Republicans and Democrats debated each other and accomplished things by working together. 
I don't see that. in the We West. only remember that because we're of a certain demographic. I, there's a lot of people who haven't seen that kind of behavior, and they're just going to have to take our word for it that that's how it used to be, and things used to get done in a bipartisan way. Jill, thank you so much. I love watching you on television. I love your podcast. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. I love show, so thank you for having me on. <laughs> thank you very much. We are going to take a break for news and traffic, and we'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. February 28th. February 28th. That's um, one of the days you have to write on your calendar. It is when the people of the city of Chicago will be voting for their next mayor. We have been uh, talking to all of the candidates, and we will continue to do that right up until February 28th. Uh, one person you've probably heard a little more than the others here on this radio station uh, is Paul Vallis. He and I used to do a regular segment where we would uh, talk about all kinds of things going on in the city of Chicago. Uh, and I'm happy to have him back now as a candidate for mayor. Hello, Paul. How are you? Hi, Joan. Uh- Hopefully, after I uh, after I win, I'll be able to uh, return to that regular seg- segment. <laughs> yeah, yes. Here you go. Here's um, every Wednesday with the mayor of the city of Chicago here on WCPT. Uh, and he will let you talk about anything you want to talk about, young man. I know. Well, well you know, I uh, I used to do a talk to the schools on the on, uh, the, the uh, news radio seventy eight uh, a number of years ago it was it was great it was like a it was like a two hour session it was that Buckney and it, it was uh, it it was one of my favorite things. Well, I like talking to you as as you well know. Hey, I was I was just trying to find it in the break, and of course sometimes I read things and then I I lose the source. Somebody was talking about uh, must admit, I wonder if it was Shia Capos because it was or Axios. Chicago, because they were talking about how, um, you know, the administration is trying to get all of the last of the trees planted, even though this isn't exactly tree planting season and the fear is they won't survive. But as part of the data, they also said, and, you know, the city of Chicago is very proud that 280 homes had their lead pipelines replaced. The numbers up to 280. When you and I started talking about this, I think, uh, well, we started, there was like five or six, and then it got to 60. And I remember one of our listeners calling in and, and berating us, like, you and Paul Vallis, all you ever talk about is lead pipes, lead pipes. Um, but, you know, out of the hundreds of thousands, you know, 280. And, and we don't see, we don't see any plan to gear up. What's the deal there's, with that? There's no plan. Let me point out that there's, very quickly, there's 390,000 residential service lines, and they've only replaced 280, which is abysmal. Newark uh, uh, and he, uh, replaced all their red lead pipes in, I think, a two-year period, and they provided uh, fil- water filtration systems so that while they were moving to replace the lead pipes, uh, they were uh, they were at least ensuring that poor families had access to clean drinking water. Because And Detroit did out- the same thing. Detroit replaced all their pipes, and while they were waiting to get to every house, 
rather than having people have to go to city council or go to the administration right. and fill out a form to get a water, water filtration system that they may or may not end up getting. Detroit looked at their zip codes and they were like, okay, this zip code and this zip code, we know those are poor, um, poorly resourced neighborhoods. And we know there is a lot of lead pipes there. So you know what? Anybody who lives in those zip codes, we're just going to show up and we're going to give them water, water filtration systems. They didn't have to apply. They didn't have to go through any red tape. They didn't have to wait. The city just said, we know these people need these. Let's just get them going. Look, look, I believe that this is the most serious crisis impacting uh, uh a young children since polio because lead is present in 97% of our pipes are lead and any, any uh, minute, even the most minute uh, uh, evidence of lead in the water can do uh, serious long-term permanent, uh, actually permanent damage to young children, uh, attention deficit disorder. It slows the learning process and, and it's been directly linked to behavioral problems which ultimately manifest themselves in violence. There have been studies that have been put out that link the dramatic rise in violent crime in major cities uh, during, the, uh, uh, during the 70s and 80s to the kind of automotive, automotive revolution post-World War II. And, and, of course, when lead was in all the gasoline, and those same studies point to suggest that the significant reduction in violent crime in large urban areas uh, really begins to happen about 10, 12, 15 years uh, after lead is banned from gasoline. So the bottom line here is because, remember, it does damage uh, for young people, and that damage is long-lasting. So for heaven's sakes, go out and purchase these, these, these pre-approved and, and high-quality water filtration, home water filtration systems, and, and do it through the schools or however you're going to distribute it. Go out in those poor communities, and if the families do not have water filtration systems, then provide them one. Look at all the money that we spent in the schools on COVID mitigations, despite the fact that within among school children themselves and within the school community itself, uh, COVID they had, had probably its, its smallest impact. Well, for heaven's sakes, for young people, uh, lead in the water is a much greater long-term and permanent danger than COVID ever was. Can't we buy these filtration systems? Can't we install them in the homes? Because not only would it get the lead out of the water, it can replace about 99% of the lead. But what it could also do is there was a recent story done by our friend Michael Hawthorne of the Tribune, who Mm -hmm. is the only reporter following this. And what he did was he talked about new contaminants found in the drinking water. They're called PFAS. Yes, PFAS. That's right. And they can cause cancers. They can adversely impact every organ in the body. Well, guess what? These same water filtration uh, uh, systems can actually get, uh, get rid of 99%. Uh, of the PFAS contaminants in the drinking water. So what in the world are we waiting for? I mean, what in God's earth are we waiting for? Well, that's actually, um, I know I've had, I've had Michael on a couple of times and, um, 
As a matter of fact, I just bought, you know, um, you know, they make those, you know, Brita and Pure. They make those little things you can stick in the refrigerator and, you know, they have a little spigot on them. Well, there's a company called Zero and they make the a filtration system that gets rid of the PFAS. And I, I was like, you know what? I'm, I've, I've done these interviews. I know this is a problem. I know it happens in this area. I realize that I'm old and maybe, you know, maybe I should be full of PFAS. Maybe it would help me somehow in my golden years. But, you know, no time like the present to start dealing with some of this. And I actually just bought us one of these filtration systems. But here's the thing, Paul. Okay, this is the kind of issue that for a politician, it would seem to be like, here, I'm going to put this in your lap and you can have such a big win with this. Do it, you know, do it for a lot of people and then go around singing your song about how you did this. I don't understand why year after year the city of Chicago gets nothing done. And you, we've all heard the excuses. Well, you know, we don't have the right contractors or um, our contractors don't know the best way to do this. You know, we've we've got a. You know, we've got to reinvent the wheel because God knows no other communities of any size have had this problem. I mean, it's the excuses are just jaw dropping. This would be such a win. If I were in political office, I'd have all my water department people in and I'd be like, folks, we're doing this. We're doing it big. We're doing it now. And yet I see no indication of anything like that coming just from a, a political standpoint i don't understand it paul well let me tell you what happens what happens is people are afraid uh, politicians are afraid to be honest with people you know i remember once two children died of spinal meningitis on the west side and there was this rumor out there that the schools were somehow poisonous or contaminated and that you know the whole idea that we basically weren't doing what needed to be done to protect kids and even though the school's uh, even though, you know, even though the community was really concerned, City Hall basically said, don't respond, don't respond. Obviously, it has nothing to do with the schools. If you respond, if you respond by going in and like cleaning the schools and disinfecting the schools, uh, uh, it's going to there's going to be a backlash. Uh, it, so, you know what I did? It, it was a four day weekend. I went out and I hired uh, decontamination companies. And we hired 300 people. They hired 300 people from the community, and they went in over a four-day period. They decontaminated every school in that area on the south side, 26 schools. And the city hall was furious. But you know what happened? And even though the decontaminations, uh, we didn't need to do that, the community was fearful. And, and so I always felt that if you identify a problem and you tell people how you're going to attack it, You'll gain more points than you'll ever leave. The interesting thing is the day after the contaminations were complete, there was never again, never again did anyone say that our schools were, were, were killing kids. You know what I mean? So at the end of the day, things have to be up front. You have to say, we have a serious problem, and this is how we're going to address it. And, you know, putting water filtration systems in poor homes is the quickest and easiest way to, to ensure I mean, between the food deserts in our poor communities and the lead water and the dirty water that our kids are ingesting, I mean, we are literally poisoning poor children and poor families in the city. 
Uh, Paul Vallis and I are talking about the issues in the city of Chicago. He is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. You will be voting if you live in the city of Chicago on February 28th. We're going to take a break and be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Paul Vallis, candidate for mayor of the city of Chicago. You will be voting if you live in Chicago this coming February 28th. We were talking about clean water. There are lots of other things I'd like to touch base with him about. So, Paul, let's start with crime. Let's start with crime and what you do about it. (laughs) Well, you know, there are things that you can. These are the things that you can do right now. And these are the things that I'll do once I take office. The first thing I'll do is 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 uh, replace Brown and his leadership team and and promote uh, accomplished, respected officers from within who will have the command and the support of the rank and file. Because when you, you we're going to lose another thousand cops uh, this year, and we lost a thousand cops that the last year. And while the city's struggling to fill the vacancies, the city has literally significantly reduced the standards for recruiting new officers because they can't attract new officers. And that in itself is a potential time bomb. So you need to get new leadership in. The second thing you need to do is you need to return to this concept of community-based policing where every police beat has a patrol car. And that is not happening right now. And, and, and that means that priority has to be given to moving officers down to the local beats. And if you do that, you're not going to have this this tragedy where uh, only half of the high priority 911 calls are even being responded to. Uh, you know, so forget about whether or not Fox is going to charge them or whether or not they're going to be granted bail. They're not even being arrested. There's no car to respond. Last year, there were over 400,000 high priority 911 calls that did not have a car available, including 32,000 assaults and batteries in progress. And the third thing you've got to do is really put these these overworked, exhausted police officers on normal, predictable and, and, and uh, schedules, because one of the things that's driving them uh, uh, to retire or to transfer to other police districts is the fact that these horrendous schedules are not only punishing them and their family. And the fourth thing is you've got to let these officers make arrests. I'm talking about making arrests for destroying public property, make arrests for car thefts, make arrests for 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 uh, you know for uh, vandalism, for uh, walking in and just you know with and and filling their their baskets and their bags with uh, with merchandise off the shelf. I mean, Fox is even prosecuting anyone who steals less than a thousand dollars. You've got to be able to begin enforcing these laws. So I think if you did those four things, I think it would slow the exodus of officers, number one. That would give you an opportunity to fill the vacancies uh, without without lowering standards. And I also think it would give me the capacity to invite officers who left, uh, give them an invitation to return without the loss in seniority, and then do what other mayors have done. Uh, to invite police officers who have retired to return to the police district to work part-time, particularly on on uh, helping detectives investigate cases, because they're only clearing about 15% of the murder cases and less than 5% of the c- cases involving someone getting shot. Uh, and uh, and um, and it would also give give the detectives division 
enough resources so that we can protect witnesses because there's no witness protection program. Last year, there were 58 mass shootings in the city of Chicago. That's four or more people shot at a given time. And I believe that at least three through last August, the Sun-Times reported they had only made one arrest. So those are things that I would do immediately. But then, uh, in addition to that, I would do a number of things to get at, uh, to, you know, to get at the the uh, immediate things that could help get at the underlying causes of crime. And what I would do is what I did when I ran the schools uh, for the Daily Administration a number of years ago. I would open the school campuses through the dinner hour on weekends over the summer during the holidays and invite community-based organizations to bring their programs to the local schools. And this would allow our, us to keep our young people fully engaged uh, in academic support activities, uh, sports and recreation, uh, give high school kids an opportunity to participate in work study. And this would allow young people to be in, this, in safe places during the violent crime hours. I'm talking about, you know, for young people, it's like, it's like after four o'clock or it's on the holidays it's, or it's over the summer or, or it's on the weekend. So mm-hmm. it would allow these 600 campuses to be open and to provide a hub of activity so we can keep hundreds of thousands of kids firmly, firmly engaged during the most dangerous times of the day and the most dangerous times of the year. These are things that we could do that the next mayor could do immediately. I noticed um, I was talking to um, Alderwoman Sophia King a while back, and she released a program that um, I remember part of her deal was, you know, bring back retired detectives. And I was like, mm, I've heard this idea before. Yeah. You know, it's something like yeah. you and I have talked about before. Um, in addition to bringing back retired detectives to fill the ranks, though, you would like to lure back some of the dete- uh, some of the officers who've just simply quit. Haven't most of the ones who've quit gone to other departments? Yeah, they have. But there's larger numbers who would like to return if they felt that they had the leadership and if they felt that they had the, the right strategy. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, the fundamental problem with the police department is the fact that not only do we make the wrong decisions about, uh, you know, who we sometimes select as superintendent, as I believe this mayor has done, but also that a lot of people who are promoted into the exam ranks are not necessarily the best and the brightest. You know, it's the old friends and family promotion policies. You know, you promote people on merit, but you're really a lot of times promoting people because of politics. So the, the police department needs to have professional leadership. People move into the exempt ranks. People move into the senior positions. And they need to be individuals who have the time in grade, as I like to say in the military, who have the experience, who have the records, uh, who have had success, who, and who have gone through the additional training that's needed. And I think you need to do a great degree of professionalization in that regard. But I will also say this. We need to stop paying lip service to, you know, restoring mental health services and, and, and for making the investment in community-based social services. Because, unfortunately, in Chicago, the police are not only the first responders, but they, sometimes they're the only responders. And I think that's a prescription for disaster. So as mayor, I will, put, I will open community-based mental health uh, uh, centers in every single police district. I will open opioid and drug addiction centers in every police district. I will prioritize 
the reestablishment and the rebuilding of community-based social services. And, and I will find ways to provide the additional funding for programs like CRED and other intervention programs that are community-based that are showing some promising results because we can't simply wait, uh, put all the burden on the police. We've got to do what needs to be done so the police have the resources and support they need uh, to be effective, but the schools have got to play that role, as I've articulated, and we've got to begin to restore these critical social services to the community. So the police are maybe the first responders, but they're not the only responders. Um, I know that you've um, had some great successes raising money and getting some high-profile people to help you out with your campaign. Uh, Chicago Magazine, don't ask me where, uh, uh, Ted McClellan decided uh, who the top five contenders were in this race. Um, Do you consider yourself one of the top five contenders? I actually think it's a it, it, it's a, it, it's a top three contender race right now, and yeah, my poll certainly shows that. Other people's polls certainly show that, and 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 my um, and despite the fact that I haven't done any advertising and the fact that I haven't run commercials or anything like that, I mean my numbers have jumped and my numbers continue to climb. The interesting thing is, uh, uh, well over two thirds of the voters who know me. Uh, actually indicate that they would support me. So if this race were only among people who know me, I wouldn't even need to run off. Uh, you know, look, <laughs> uh, I'm going to have enough money to, to to not only articulate, and you know this, Joan, my God, ad nauseum, and I've certainly gone tit for tat with some of your listeners from time to time, but but I've, I have been consistent about offering specific ideas to deal with public safety in schools, getting let out of the water. And God, I did it on your show for so many times. I look forward to having an opportunity to do it again. But, but I'm going to have money to also, number one, remind people that I'm voting and to remind people of the 78 schools I built, most in the poorest communities, or the fact that I did record minority and woman-owned contracting or that I kept the schools open through the dinner hour and on holidays and over the weekends to keep kids firmly engaged or that I created a crisis fund and then never took an honorarium over, uh, over my entire six years, nor pay raise until the last year uh, and used mo- that money to pay for well over a hundred funerals for families who's, who had been the victims of violence. And those are the things that I did. And if I remind people of those things, uh, I think there's a lot of people who are going to be who are impacted by the things that I did that are going to come out and vote for me. And and I'm not focusing on a specific demographic or group. Uh, you know, uh, John Cass, your friend, I say, <laughs> I say with some degree of trepidation, always says, "Who's your tribe?" Well, my tribe is anyone who believes that that living in a safe community is a human right. My tribe is anybody who believes that, you know, having quality educational choices is a civil right. And my tribe is anybody who believes that we need to be able to live in an affordable city because there's only 16 percent of the residents in this city are now considered to be middle income. And if there's too much crime and taxes are too high and schools are inadequate, it's individuals, it's the affluent and the middle class who leave the biggest exodus in Chicago has been the black exodus the last 20 years 
the black middle-income families with children exodus. And, uh, and, the, and I think the, the fact that you have so many prominent uh, uh, black uh, candidates running in the mayor's office, I think is a clear reflection uh, that that uh, that there is great dis- that that the great dissatisfaction with the performance of the present mayor is includes dissatisfaction within the black community. Paul, it is always a delight to talk to you. I am sure we will talk many times before February twenty eighth. Take care of yourself and uh, good luck, and we will talk soon. Well, God bless you, Joan, and uh, the, my. Uh, my thanks for the patience of your listeners, and uh, I look forward to uh, I look forward to joining you after I get elected for uh, the, you know to talk to the mayor. How's that? It sounds wonderful. I'm going to hold you to it. Um, I can be very annoying, just so you know. Um, thank you to Paul Vallis. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more. We're going to look back at Georgia again right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT eight twenty. May have mentioned a few times on the radio today that there's a big vote in Georgia tomorrow. We are seeing Democrats, Republicans and independents cast their votes for either Raphael Warnock or former football player Herschel Walker. A lot of people, including me, have made fun of Herschel Walker, who uh, is quite possibly the worst candidate for higher office I have ever seen in my lifetime. But that doesn't mean he can't win. Greg Palast uh, has been spending a lot of time in Georgia. It is uh, where he based his documentary Vigilante on voter suppression efforts and joins us now to talk about tomorrow's election. Greg, welcome. Uh, glad to uh, be speaking to you from very unsunny Georgia. It's pouring rain. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah. And, uh, well, I'm sorry for uh, Reverend Warnock, our senator. Uh, here, uh, not my senator. I'm from Hollywood. <laughs> but I keep having to come back to this state because for nine years I keep returning, whether it's for Rolling Stone or BBC and uh, WCPT. Uh, on um, on uh, this is the the uh, vote suppression central. What happens in Georgia will be coming to a state near you, and that's the real story here. If you look at the polls. Uh, Reverend Senator Warnock, I saw is a reverend. He's still uh, the Baptist at uh, Martin Luther King's Church, Ebenezer Baptist, and he was just gave his sermon yesterday, Sunday. Um, so he still has uh, that job too. But the Reverend Senator uh, would not be in a runoff right now, except for what we politely call vote suppression. And by the way, Joe, I know we use that term, but when if your car gets stolen, you don't say my car's been suppressed. You know, stolen. Yeah. So. And the way that they here's what they've been doing here. First of all, there's no voting today. And you can't you're not even allowed to drop off an absentee ballot in a drop box. They've sealed them up. They've removed them. This is under a new Georgia law, SB 202, because two years ago, Raphael Warnock, who won a special Senate elections uh, race, won with the mail in ballot. He got three quarters of a million votes by mail. And he wanted, he slammed it, crushed it by over two to one. So the Republican legislature and Republican Governor Kemp said, oh, Warnock won the mail-in vote? Well, let's eliminate mail-in voting. So mm-hmm. here's some of the tricks that they've done. They, okay, so they crushed the amount of time on a runoff from 60 days to 28. 
virtually no time for the counties to even print the ballots, get them out, get them back. And in Georgia, you can't just, like in most states, have it postmarked by election day. It has to be in their hands. So you can't use the post office. There's no time to mail it. So you put them in a drop box, right? Uh, yeah, not in Georgia, eh? Because what happens <laughs> is, is that in SB202, this, this uh, wonderful uh, bill, they said that if you are in a, a county with over 100,000 active voters, and there's only four and four counties, and those four counties make up Black Atlanta, Black Atlanta, uh, in the, only in the four Atlanta counties is there restriction on mail on ballot drop boxes to one for every 100,000 active voters. One for every 100,000 active voters. It applies only to Atlanta and the rest of the state, that is uh, uh, the, the, the whitish, the pale-faced part of the state. Uh, you may call it redneck red, but I don't. Um, <laughs> I can get away with it. Um, in redneck red, Georgia, they actually required by law an increase the number of ballot drop boxes. So the, the, the result has been with this type of crushing effect on mail-in voting, you had in the general election that we had in November, uh, there was an 83% drop in mail-in ballots. The number of drop boxes had gone from 107 to 25 for all of Atlanta. And so we lost 83% of the mail-in vote, which had gone two to one for Warnock. And now, now uh, the latest numbers I'm getting, it looks like over 90% of the mail-in balloting has just vanished. So when you see on TV those giant lines of black voters, and somehow that's been celebrated as a wonderful thing, look at this turnout. No, it isn't. You're looking at, the, it's like South Africa, you're looking at the effect of apartheid voting. African-Americans in Georgia vote early, and they vote in, uh, by mail. So they've el- virtually eliminated mail-in voting, and they cut the number of early voting days. When Warnock won two years ago, Joan, they had 17 days to vote in early voting. This time they've crushed it to seven from 17. From 17 to seven days. So if you, if you cut, it make it impossible to vote by mail, and you cut the number of days you can vote early, of course, those early voting lines are going to double and triple. I, didn't, I was looking at the numbers. The, the, uh, each county keeps uh, posts the waiting times. Every single Atlanta voting station had a two-hour-plus voting line. Every one of the white counties, 10 minutes to 30 minutes to vote. This is my this God. Is what we're seeing here. It's the new Jim Crow. And so, nor, you know, you would just say, if you look at the polls, hey, Warnock's walking it. No problem for Warnock. But if you look at what they do, if you have to vote to try to vote for Warnock, the, he lost his mail-in vote. His, his uh, voters are being crushed into these long two-hour lines. And by the way, is it the one thing that has been reported uh, based on original re, uh, reports last, last from the last election, in SB202, um, if you're waiting in line two hours, and this is Georgia, you can't give someone water, food, nothing. You have to wait two hours in line, three hours, four hours in line. And uh, if you, it's a felony crime if someone is thirsty to give them anything to drink. A felony crime. 
This is how crazy nuts it is here. And and yet the voters in Georgia have supported the legislators who have passed these laws because I think, well, it happens in a lot of places, but certainly in Georgia, the white population is desperate to hold on to the white power structure. Well, let me split the white population to groups because my daughter is part of the white population of Georgia as a student. Uh, a film student. You know, this is a big film center now. Uh, it's now. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. And so what's happened is, is that it's really cultural. So you have the stu- this massive student population, this massive young population. And by the way, this is like this is the, the southern San Francisco. This is where uh, uh, LGBTQ people come and live safely and happily. So you have this huge LGBTQ community, a huge student community. A huge young population in media and uh, white, Hispanic and and Asian-American, big growing group here who who are all solidly Warnock voters. They just make it miserable. So, like, how does my daughter get her ballot and get it back in? She can't if she if she's not in the state, if she's home for vacation and she's home for vacation. The schools are closed right now and they can't get the ballot and send it back. It's literally Physically impossible, the way that they ran it. So, this so does all this mean plan. that you think Warnock's in trouble? Very much. In fact, if you go to gregpalace.com, you'll see an article called Warnock's in Trouble. And, you know, I, I hate to say it. And, and you know what? It's not whether I'm for or against Warnock. I, I'm a journalist. That's, I, and I'm not a Georgian. I'm just here to report. But I know this. Brian Kemp and the GOP do not trust the voters of Georgia to make their to choose their own senators. They have to play all these insane ballot games. And then there's something else. And by the way, if you want to know what's going on in Georgia, for the next two nights, tonight, tomorrow night, and day, from now, from now until midnight, uh, actually till midnight Wednesday, you can see the film Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman, a film I made with uh, Rosario Dawson, and uh, um, Martin Sheen is the producer. He introduces the film. Uh, this film, which uh, Santita Jackson has been uh, raving about, and uh, in fact, WCPT sponsored the uh, the launch of the film uh, when we had a, a showing in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You can see it for free at VigilanteMovie.com. I want to repeat that. VigilanteMovie.com, and you can get it for free. Jamie Foxx is paying for the tickets for the next three days. You have to pay for your own popcorn. You'll laugh, cry. <laughs> And if you don't, I'll pay for your therapy. But VigilanteMovie.com. And, you know, I know the reason why we were showed it in Chicago and WCPT sponsored a showing in Minneapolis, uh, your, your sister station, is that whatever they do in Georgia, the GOP takes on the road and it's coming to a state near you. So if you think these tricks are just, you know, oh, Georgia rednecks or something, you better get ready because the tricks that they're pulling here, they're coming to a state near you. And this is why I'm here. It's not just to cover the Georgia runoff. I've been covering Georgia for nine years, for Rolling Stone, for BBC television. And the reason is that whatever they games they play in Georgia, they take it to other states if they can rip off the election, as they did against Stacey Abrams in 2018. 
Oh, um, I want to talk to you more about elections uh, past and future in Georgia. I'm talking with Greg Pallast. As he was saying, his movie is Vigilante, and you can see it free for the next few days. We're going to take a real quick commercial break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am speaking with Greg Pallast. He's based in California, but spends a lot of time in Georgia where voter suppression and uh, some just really horrific things are being done to try to keep Democrats from electing Democrats. Greg, I also wanted to ask you, I know that in conjunction uh, with uh, Black Winnet magazine, you've uh, Palest Investigative Fund filed a complaint with the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. Talk to me about that. Well, uh, what we what we did was because I had the because I do the investigative facts and our investigative fund discovered this massive, this massive attack on the mail in vote, which only affected what I did was I was able to do a racial analysis. I was able to get in, in Georgia, you can find out the race of a voter. They keep track of this. But it did help us figure out that this attack on mail in voting applied almost exclusively to black voters. Let's put it this way. The difference between access to mail-in voting is 314% higher if you're white than if you're a black voter. They've literally worked the system to go after the black voter. Now, you know, there's two black candidates, but, you know, but the black voters are going roughly 96% for Warnock, and they know that. So it's not that they mind the color of someone's skin who's a voter. They mind the color of their vote, which is blue. So this is the game that's played here, but it is against the law. We don't, we're, you know, we don't have, we're not supposed to have apartheid voting in America. But in fact, under SB 202, as the NAACP says, it's become Jim Crow 2.2. And that's why we filed a complaint with the Department of Justice. If you, by the way, every American is affected by a racism in voting and racism in, in, in voting rules. You can sign the petition the complaint yourself by going to gregpalast.com. But again, go there, sign up, and you'll also get a link to see the, the film. Hey, that's not too painful, but I want you to know what's going on in Georgia. So see Vigilante, Georgia's Vote Suppression Hitman at vigilantemovie.com. And I want to mention, Joan, that I was just down in Coffee County, down near the Florida border. You, you know, you enter the county and there's a bunch of Confederate flags and there. And we were showing the film. And um, it was a, a showing sponsored at a church by one of our stars, Olivia Pearson. How has she become a star of the film? She's the first black woman who was elected to the city council in the deep south part of Georgia. And she was arrested by Brian Kemp, who at the time was secretary of state, charging her with voter interference, was going to throw her in jail for five years as a city councilor. People filled out, uh, disabled people filled out forms requesting help from officials in, in uh, figuring out how to use the voting machines. And they have charged her doing her job with a felony crime of voter interference. Now, a local jury threw out the charges in, I think it was some type of record time, like 35 seconds or something like that. They threw out the charges, but this woman had felony charges overhead. Then he went to the next town, 10. African-Americans were elected to the school board, and he charged all 10 of them with voter interference, including school teachers, including two PhDs. That was thrown out, too, 
but they were facing 10 years in prison, school board members. Mm-hmm. And uh, the local sheriff, who is white, says, you are arresting the most prominent educated people in our community, he told Brian Kemp. This is the governor who is set the stage for this Jim Crow voting law, SB 202. This is what's happening in Georgia. You can't imagine. You leave Atlanta, and you 50 miles out of Atlanta, you go back 50 years. It's, it's, uh, it's horrific here But in this voting. And that's why, despite the polls, I'm warning you, you could end up with Senator Walker. Not because it's, you know, if it's the choice of the voters, I'll live with that. But if it's the choice of Jim Crow, we shouldn't stand for it. Yeah. That's just so terrifying, Greg. It is just so terrifying. And isn't Georgia, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure you are more up on the demographics. Uh, isn't uh, Georgia getting blacker and blacker with every census? You know, yes, Georgia has just become um, the census is projecting Georgia to be by, say, next year, the first deep south minority majority state. And it's not so much the increase in the black population, which has been substantial, but a huge increase in the Asian American and Hispanic population. And they went after you see the if you see the film Vigilante, we had a, an Asian American group called 10,000 Koreans vote. Well, you going to get 10,000 Koreans to vote. The Korean-American organization uh, had a registered 10,000 Korean-Americans. So they registered thousands of Korean-Americans, gave them to the state of Georgia. Uh, Brian Kemp, uh, just before he was uh, made himself governor, he was still in charge of the voting as Secretary of State. And their lawyer called up and said, where's our voters? Where's our Korean-American voters? We sent you thousands of uh, voter forms. Uh, registration forms. They said, we never got them. We don't see any voter registration forms. And we said, they, we, we, did, we sent those forms. We know we sent them. We have photocopies. They said, we'll be right over. And they sent in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, their own little FBI. They kicked in the doors, robocops with the, with the automatic weapons, the whole thing, grabbed their computers, and threatened these elderly Korean-Americans with felony uh, voter registration crimes because they photocopied the voter forms. Now, needless to say, the charges were thrown out and thrown out. But after the organization was destroyed and disbanded because they just scared off the Korean American community. This uh. is being played because they're so afraid because Asian Americans used to vote in the majority Republican. Now they vote like they turn black. I mean, you're talking about about an 80% Asian-American vote Democratic. And uh, Brian Kemp and the GOP vote mafia here will not stand for that. So they're scaring the hell out of the Korean-American community, which is growing and growing here. And, uh, and we see this games being played against the Hispanic community. They have a they, – so they play – here's the wonderful game that they use on the Hispanic community. That's something called exact match which means that your driver's license, your registration card, and all your ID have to exactly match or your vote doesn't count. So the problem is that on some driver's licenses, they leave out the accent mark and the little, you know, the little... Oh, little my God. And so you just lost your vote because they left off the accent mark on your driver's license, but you signed your registration form with the accent mark. 
you know, the games that they play here against it's voters terrifying, of color. It's terrifying, Greg. It's terrifying. I, I, we, I have to wrap the conversation up. We're at the end. We're at the end of the show. Um, but you know, now, now we will all really be watching to see what happens in Georgia tomorrow. Greg Palace, the movie's vigilante. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you, all of you who listened today. Appreciate you. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is next. I will see you tomorrow at two o'clock. Have a great evening. Stay safe. Good night. <laughs> 